Turb Alpin, Tim Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Wednesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, except owing to the holiday, etc. that occurs on a Wednesday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest, and as he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the Los Angeles Dodgers have DFA'd, designated for assignment, infielder, outfielder, Alex Guerrero. Originally signed by the club in October of 2013, after he defected from Cuba, Guerrero received a contract for $28 million over four years, ultimately recorded only about 250 plate appearances with the parent club. Cameron provides a brief chronicle of Guerrero's stateside baseball career and provides a status update of sorts on Cuban players currently playing in the majors. The Boston Red Sox. They currently possess the best record in the American League, and yet one is compelled to ask how different is this club actually than the one which failed to win even 80 games in 2015. To what degree is Ben Charrington, largely the architect of this club, vindicated? And what is he doing right now? What are his job prospects, etc., etc.? Furthermore, as part of our practical analytics series, Dave Cameron develops a scattering report for assessing the quality of a neighbor while also finding the five-tool format insufficient, ultimately. Uh, actually, I think now that I think about this, I would like to add a sixth tool. Okay. Uh, which is uh, richness. That amusing utterance and others not unlike it. In the conversation to follow with Dave Cameron. But first, a sponsor's message. You might be shocked to learn that the sponsor is SeatGeek. SeatGeek.com. As if life weren't already difficult enough, already full sufficiently of work and hassle, one finds even more work and also additional hassle while attempting to purchase tickets online. Tickets to sporting events, tickets to concerts. Tickets for really anything that require admission. But have you considered SeatGeek? What they do is to pull tickets from all manner of other sites into one place to aggregate them, as it were, thus providing users with the lowest possible price available. Furthermore, every ticket available on SeatGeek is assessed a grade based on the value of that ticket, allowing users essentially to exploit inefficiencies in the ticket market for a particular event. And finally, SeatGeek is always honest about the price, quoting the same figure from the beginning to the end of a transaction, never assessing any mysterious fees like certain competitors such as StubHub. Shall say like that, StubHub. For having endured this message, the listener is entitled to a $20 rebate. Here's how you claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, FANGRAPHS. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. I've seen actual evidence of people doing this. It's a real thing. Promise. Download the free Seeky app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today here at your nearest convenience. With which I've completed the sponsor's message and turn now to a conversation. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. you to engage in a brief experiment, uh, which I called then practical, what is it, practical analytics? Something yeah, like that? that sounds familiar. Okay. Today we're going to do another version of that, Dave. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, this is more borrowing, um, this is maybe along the lines of uh, acquiring qualitative data as opposed to quantitative, right? Um, and maybe along more along the lines of the sort of thing you might find from a scout than, a, than an analyst. Okay. But this is if you if it was your business to prepare a scouting report, yeah, on your neighbor. 
what would be what would be the various um, tools that you'd be looking for from your neighbor? What and and uh, what do you think would add up to the very best qualities? So I think uh, if we're gonna go, are there gonna be five tools? We're gonna stick with the baseball metaphor. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so I think friendliness has got to be like, you know, the the most important of the five tools, probably. Can I, I call it affability? You could call it affability. I would like to call it affability because I do not necessarily care for because friendliness, right? This is just an adjective with this with the end n e s s on the end, which uh-huh. makes it a noun. I prefer affability. Okay, you just don't like words and then nets. I don't care. No, I don't. I'm trying to okay. tell you right now. So I, I have to come up with five tools, and they can't be nesses. Okay. Well, you can you can come up if you don't mind words that end with ness. What, what do you have against the word ness? Because it's just like a little bit of a lazy way to 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 uh, transform an adjective into a noun. Are you going to tell the Loch Ness monster that he's lazy? <laughs> yeah, I got. I got hey, you lazy monster! You're <laughs> actually just a lock. <laughs> Okay, continue. Uh, all right, so friendliness, okay. affability. I yeah, guess is, uh, is what we're going with. But sure. How how is adding the word ability after something any less lazy? It's from the word affable. I don't know. Listen, move on. <laughs> uh, okay, so affability slash friendliness. Okay. Uh, then I think you want uh, something to do with. Uh, privacy, maybe? Like, you don't want the overly intrusive neighbor. So, like, uh, someone, like, you want something that keeps to themselves at the appropriate times. At the appropriate uh, times. I think that's an important disclaimer. Because I think sometimes it can be amusing yeah. for a neighbor to pop over. Yeah. Do you want to hear my fun neighbor story? Okay. Uh, it ties into this. A uh, mm. little bit of a diatribe. So when we first moved into the house that we're currently in, uh, we needed our neighbor's permission to have the cable company go into the woods behind her house to, like, run new cables so I can have Internet so I can work. And so on a Sunday afternoon, I knocked on her door and, like, basically asked permission for the cable guy to, like, come over that week and lay cable. She answered the door. This was a woman probably in her early 60s and uh, hadn't met her, only moved into the house a few days previously. And uh, it was like, hi, I'm... And she basically cut me off and said... Is this life or death? Because if not, it's the middle of the, the or the the final few minutes of the Women's World Cup final, and apparently uh, the U.S. was in it. I guess uh, a, few, a few years back, uh-huh. and uh, she was very interested in watching the end of this. And once I confirmed that it was not life or death, she slammed the door in my face and went back to watching the soccer game. Yeah. Came back over a half an hour later and was like, "I'm really sorry about that." Uh, it was just bad timing. So she was a, she's an affable person, but the timing of my uh, viewer, yeah, uh, it was really really poor. Yeah. So you want something like so you wanted a neighbor who exhibits discretion is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, I okay. think discretion is a good word for uh, the second tool. So okay. yeah, aff- affability and discretion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you want someone with taste, so that you don't want them painting their house like neon green. That's true. Uh, could lower or, your own. Or, yeah. Or running like seven thousand Christmas lights, uh, or right. giant inflatable Santas. I right, think, uh, right, right, right. You, yeah. you would like to have avoid those. So, uh, some manner of like uh, shame, I <laughs> think, could be a, a good good term okay, for it. Yeah. Uh, do you think we're gonna get five out of this, Cameron? What do you think your chances are? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm sixty percent of the way there, so yeah, you, you are. Know, I can I can scrounge up two more out okay. of the bottom of this barrel. Okay. Uh, I think you probably want someone. Uh, in a similar life stage to you, right? Oh, okay. So it's, 
it's probably better if like they're within I don't know plus or ten minus plus or minus ten years of you. If you're seventy, you probably don't want a twenty year old neighbor, and vice versa. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah, certainly so at the eight, extremes it breaks down. Yeah, so age buckets. I mm-hmm. think is, uh, I don't know. I don't know what term you want to use for that. Uh, uh, relative youth, maybe, um, or some proximity of age. Yeah. Okay, I'll do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then a fifth one. Uh, you probably want like uh, some kind of uh, similar fondness for pets. So like our new neighbors who've moved in on the other side of us, uh, they have two dogs and we have a dog and our dogs get along really well, which is great because uh, our dog violates their their property line on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And if they if they were not fond of pets, that would be a problem. I see. Yeah, I think that's yeah that's and that could that could grow over to something maybe more. Um more general. I don't necessarily know what it would be, but it would be a. It's not patience necessarily. It's tolerance of. Uh, sort of. There's a question of to, uh, tolerance, I guess. Tolerance yeah. is fine. No, yeah. to, tolerance would be a good one to use because I guess there are times where, in non-pet situations, you might want to be able to use their driveway if you're having something delivered and it's more convenient to access your house from their driveway, or you know, uh, right. yeah, certain situations where. Using their yard, or you want to borrow a ladder, or something along those lines, it's helpful to have them uh, be tolerant of your needs. Yeah. Okay. I think that's very good. If you now, if you were to uh, to assess, you don't have to name names, of course, but would you say that your scattering reports on your neighbors are pretty strong? Uh. So I think the new neighbors who've just moved in with the two dogs. Uh. We are we they are like seventies and seventy fives across the board. They're wow. great. We're like really sad that they just moved in like a couple of months ago and now we're leaving. Oh, that's of course. Yes, of course that's true. Yeah. So yeah. if they had moved in like a little while ago, we might not have actually moved because they're great. For that reason, yeah. It's <clears throat> to me that's this is an interesting part about moving anywhere. And of course, if you are buying property, it only raises the stakes. But if you're in a place where you're likely to be interacting with your neighbors with some frequency. It's so it uh, it's so amazing to me. It's it's very hard information to gather before you move right. to the new yeah. property, and yet Correct. I feel like it could also color your experience of it very strongly. Absolutely, there's no no question that having a good neighbor or a bad neighbor can can have a significant impact on your life, and it's not something you can really predict ahead of time. Right. Yeah. Um. I know that I'm talking with uh, CEO and founder and Dark Overlord David Appleman. He lives in a condominium. Yeah. And he says that uh, in this course, this this relates to the way that physical space tends to um, tends to influence our experience of the world. He said he do, he doesn't really know his neighbors, and I know that from other people who live in sort of uh, you know apartment-like condominium buildings. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's no like uh, spot for them to just go hang out in the hallway. Right. You know what like that's called? The... Semi-private space. Semi-pri- sure. Semi-private space. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in our case, we've gotten to know our neighbors because we hang out in our front yard regularly because of the dog and the child, and they also do the same, so then you're, like, next to each other. But I guess if you're in a condo building, you hang out with your dog and your child behind your door. Right, yeah, harder to interact. People who, uh, on average, of course, uh, but studies suggest that people who have access to semi-private spaces, like you're saying, like, you're in your lawn, but you see other people, Right. on general, their happiness is greater. Yeah, I think we're happy to have a semi-private space, yeah. and uh, also happy that the people who uh, are in our adjacent semi-private space mm-hmm. are affable and tolerant. Yeah, there and, you go. Uh, actually, I think now that I think about this, I would like to add a sixth tool. Okay. 
which is uh, richness. I think you want them to like have stuff because we really like our child steals their children's toys uh, nightly. Like he just goes into their garage and like I'm gonna play with this. And we really like the fact that they have more toys than we do because it saves us a lot of money. <laughs> so so wealth or generosity. Uh, yeah, or I think, yeah, either or both, preferably. Right. I think if you're going to have like, a really nice, generous, rich neighbor, that's probably the best of the best of all worlds. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably a little bit easier. At least the wealth is probably easier to, uh, to predict. To predict, yeah, something yeah. like that. I mean, I, would, I don't know that our next door neighbors are wealthy, but they're wealthy enough to buy stuff that I wouldn't buy. Right. You know, we were talking about. cheap, I think. We were talking about, uh, briefly the way that, the way that, um, you know, relationship between an, uh, in terms of age, right? Sort of age proximity could break down at sort of the fringes of, you know, if you, you have a seven-year-old, living a twenty-year-old. I was thinking about with regard to baseball models. This uh-huh. sometimes happens at the at, at the edges of our ERA estimators, doesn't it? Uh, it can, yeah. I was sure. looking at um, Matt Shoemaker's, maybe his FIP, maybe yeah. from yeah. the last two starts. Have you? Have you observed Matt Shoemaker at all of late? I have not watched him, but I've noticed the the stat line. So he had like 12, 12 strikeouts a couple starts ago mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Yeah, and then eleven. I think I think yeah. eleven the next game, or it was twelve, eleven and twelve, something like that. Yeah. Um, that is uh, that's surprising. There's a he, lot of strikeouts. Yeah, he's throwing according to our Jeff Sullivan, who wrote about uh, who wrote about Matt Shoemaker today. Uh, Matt Shoemaker, um, his. Rate of split finger fastballs, the last two starts is over forty percent. That's a lot of splitters. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's actually interesting the degree to which that pitch is has essentially like a geographic, like you could you could you could predict it based on uh, geography to some degree. Yeah, you could basically do a flow chart of like, are you from Japan? If yes, you throw a splitter. If no, probably not. Yeah. But it, but there must be notable splitters for stateside. I mean, for players born in the states, right? From the past. I mean, didn't did uh, Mike Scott? Wasn't that a pitch? Yeah, that, Mike, Mike Scott threw one. I think Kurt Schilling threw one. Uh, Roger Clemens, I think, threw one. Yeah, split finger fastball. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think uh, it's it's actually I think in the like 80s and 90s it was considered to be a dangerous pitch in terms of like if you threw it a lot your arm would blow up. There's like no evidence for that. I don't think it was just one of those things that everyone started believing. Well, did it happen? Uh, I mean, is it is it possible that uh, that it, it just happened to someone? Circumstantial, yeah. Right. Like, someone who threw a lot of splitters had their arm explode. Mm-hmm. Probably because they were throwing, like, you know, 200 pitches a game or whatever they used to throw. Uh, yeah. I, I think that was a pitch that fell out of favor in the U.S. because of a probably specious belief uh, that it caused arm problems. Right. But that's... Uh, but it'd be right. Throwing... Throwing a baseball is the thing that causes the Yeah, argument. right, exactly. Right. Uh, and I think, oh, Bruce Souter was another one. That, yeah. He comes to mind as well. Yeah. Um, that he learned that pitch. It's a great pitch, right? Because it, uh, my guess is, I believe I'm not, uh, lying when I say that it has very little in the way of a platoon split. Yeah, it's, I mean, so like, the trick is, and I think we, we, as we saw, like, David Lorelo when he talked to Danny Salazar last week and, and wrote in his Sunday Notes piece, is that there's not really a huge difference between a split finger and a changeup. Like it is a, it moves similarly in a lot of cases. They just get called one thing or another uh, based on grip. But it's basically like I think Trevor Bauer was like telling Salazar, it's not a changeup, it's a splitter. Like it doesn't I don't care how you hold it, it is 
how you throw it and, and what it does is defines the pitch. Um, but there are very similar pitches, and I think we, we kind of know the changeup has a, a reverse platoon split in a lot of cases, whereas platoon neutral or pitchers with really good changeups often uh, handle opposite-handed hitters really well, and, and so the split finger for a pitcher who can't uh, figure out a changeup grip is kind of the same idea. Is there? You said that there's no difference between, or <clears throat> there's not a pronounced difference necessarily between the split finger fastball and the changeup. Some changeups do, they are they feature more pronounced, uh, what fade? Fade, fade. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, where you'll get like more uh, movement away from the hitter with a changeup, mm-hmm. where a splitter is generally going to be more just straight down. Uh, but a lot of pitchers, who especially ones without like amazing changeups, end up just throwing their changeup straight down as well. Right, and obviously there are pitchers. I mean, Koji Uehara has uh, his career in the states has largely been defined by his ability to throw that pitch, despite the yep. fact that I mean he's had a lot of success despite the fact that he does not throw uh, his fastball over 90 miles per hour. Right. I mean, yeah. you could basically make the same case for every Japanese pitcher. <laughs> like almost all of them, with the exception of you, Darvish, I guess, uh, comes over with a you know um, average or probably below average fastball, mm-hmm. and they all throw the same kind of splitter changeup thing. And they're all way better than expected. You look at Sashi Iwakuma and Masahiro Tanaka and Junichi Suwawa. I mean, like Sangwano. Like uh, all of these guys who came over. I guess uh, uh, not all of them exactly the same. They have different levels of stuff, but um, they all uh, tend to favor this pitch, and, and they all tend to outperform expectations. Uh, when I talk about performance relative to expectations, actually, in a little bit, um, I think that Alex Guerrero maybe uh, provides an entry point into that conversation. Yeah, maybe um, he should learn a split finger and try, try to pitch. Well, well, there's that uh, there's that angle, but I'm, I'm interested in this sort of like the state, uh, like a status update on uh, Cuban ball players relative to expectations. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned though the the reverse platoon split of the change slash splitter. I noticed today that Ramon Flores um, is starting in the game against the St. Louis Cardinals, for whom uh, for whom. Jaime Garcia is uh, is starting. For which team, I should say, Jaime Garcia is starting. Ramon Flores typically does not, at least in the short time, I guess, he's been playing for the Brewers. He does not seem to uh, start very frequently against left-handed pitchers. But, of course, uh, Garcia, who's, you know, he's successful, but uh, yeah. uh, one of the ways in which he he's successful is uh, one, of the, one of the reasons is because of an excellent changeup he throws. This is not yeah. so. I'm guessing this is not surprising necessarily that Ramon Flores. That's, that must be part of the wisdom being employed by Craig Council. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to look at like, okay, I'm facing Garcia. This is not a traditional lefty. And there's no real point in stacking my lineup with right-handers against a pitcher like Garcia. Are there? Can you think of any lefties or righties? I suppose, who, off the top of your head, who have that sort of effect on opposing managers, where they're they're less likely to alter their lineup, uh, be, given the handedness of the pitcher. I feel like uh, maybe the Rays did this a couple of years ago to Cole Hamels, uh, mm-hmm. where they they said, you know what, we're just not going to put like eight lefty or eight righties against you. We're going to like put four or five lefties in the lineup against you because you have one of the best changeups in baseball, especially for a left-handed pitcher. Um, it might not have been Hamels, but I I, I vaguely remember uh, I think it was Joe Madden back then uh, doing something like that where he ran out uh, a good chunk of left-handers against Hamels. Right. Oh, it's interesting to mention Hamels, of course, because just today, even just a few hours ago, Corinne Landry wrote about uh, Cole Hamels, almost the total evaporation of of that pitch. In particular, uh, I should say over the last month, month of May, in particular against same-handed batters, still using it against opposite-handed ones, but uh, it's a pitch that he's used with some frequency against 
lefties as well, but I think he only threw two like in the entire month of May. Yeah, I think uh, what you see is that Hamill's changeup has been one of the best in baseball uh, for the last decade. Um, but now as he's added the cut, cutter that he learned from Cliff Lee back in 2010, uh, I think he's realized that the cutter may be more effective against same-handed hitters than the changeup, and so uh, kind of sectioning off the changeup to just be a weapon against righties and using the cutter against lefties, uh, probably not a bad idea when you look at kind of the properties of those pitches. How does that work? What, what, is, the, what is the advantage of a cut fastball? Which is, I mean, in, in some ways, right? I mean, sometimes cutters and sliders get confused. Yeah. Um, and, of course, sliders typically exhibit uh, a pretty large platoon split, don't they? Right. So the, the, I think what we've generally tended to notice is that pitches that move in on hitters, like diving in towards them, have really large platoon splits. So a fastball thrown from a low arm slot, like a side armor or uh, sliders, um, these pitches tend to have big platoon splits. So pitches that go up and down tend to have small platoon splits. And pitches that tail away from the hitter, uh, like a, a changeup with fade, tend to have reverse platoon splits. So it seems like if you can throw a pitch that's moving away from the hitter, uh, that's the best thing you can do uh, in order to get them out in terms of movement. And so if you're a same-handed pitcher and you throw a pitch with fade, that's going to fade back in on the hitter's hands. And so Cole Hamels has a really good changeup. But if he's throwing that change up to a left-handed hitter, it's going to move back in towards the barrel of their bat instead of away from it. Right. Or and cut, the cutter will dive away. And there are cases, right, where pitchers, I mean, of course, Cole Hamels for years was very successful, uh, it seems. But uh, And there are there are pitchers who do that, but it's not uh, it's not a frequent maneuver. Not frequent. Right. I mean, so some pitchers just have change-ups that are so much better than all their other offerings that you might as well continue to throw that pitch even though it moves back in because you're, you're you know, slightly degraded changeup against that hitter is better than your, you know, mediocre pitch that moves away from them. Um, so based on your own repertoire, you might still decide to p- throw that pitch. I think Felix Hernandez basically throws his changeup against everybody now because his fastball stinks and his changeup is by far his best pitch. So he might as well keep using it. Um, but it's in general, if you had equal pitches, you would uh, tend to, you know, game theory aside, tend to throw the ones that move away from hitters uh, more frequently. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, we mentioned uh, uh, we came across Alex Guerrero's name here briefly. Will you please explain to me explain to me what happened most recently, and then I'm interested in going back a little bit to sort of Alex Guerrero's basic career with the Dodgers. Well, he was designated for assignment, okay. so he's been removed from the 40-man roster. Uh, he is now available for any team to trade for, except for no team is probably going to want to trade for him. Uh, in part because he's been lousy in, in the major leagues, and also in part because he has a contract that uh, I think guarantees him another 10 or $15 million in the next few years. And if he's good, like if you trade for him and he has a strong second half, he has the right to void the contract, opt out, and become a free agent again uh, as part of the, the deal that the Dodgers originally gave him. So if you trade for him as a buy-low guy and he performs well, you don't get to keep him. If he's terrible, then you still have to pay him. Not Not a super attractive trade chip. Did we talk? I feel like we talked about that particular opt-out uh, when we last spoke. That's what made Guerrero basically untradeable. Was it last year yeah, when when the yeah. Dodgers are giving him playing time and he played yeah. decently at some points? Right. Yeah, and you, they still couldn't really move him because there was no real upside for the acquiring team. Is it at that point? Does it become does it become uh, a liability for Guerrero that he actually signed that sort of contract? And it's, I wouldn't say it's a liability in the fact that he's still getting paid, right. but it's a liability in the sense like it keeps him from getting another opportunity with a team. 
So the the DFA, he basically had to pay play so badly that the Dodgers just were willing to get rid of him and pay him anyway. So now, assuming he clears waivers, which is a pretty good pretty good uh, bet at this point, uh, he'll get paid by the Dodgers. They'll outright him, uh, and then he'll be free to sign with another franchise, and he can sign a minor league deal. Uh, that will allow him to go get some playing time, and if that team wants to promote him, they're not obligated under the old contract. The old contract's already been fulfilled, and the Dodgers will have to pay it anyway. So he can go find an American League team that wants a bad DH and, and try and get playing time with them. Okay, so he was, this year, he was playing a bunch in the minors. Was that part of a rehab assignment, essentially? Yeah, he got hurt in spring training, but I think with these kinds of cases, it's always... A little tough to tell how legitimate the injury is versus like we don't have a spot for you. Why don't you just go rehab for a while? So they were saying. So did they have him on the sixty day de- disabled list then? No, I think he was on the fifteen day. Okay, fifteen day. But but yeah. they were so they essentially well, we don't want to get rid of you immediately if we get, uh, immediately if we don't have to, and maybe somehow some way you'll become very good in the meantime. Right. I suppose right. Um, and we're going to have to pay the money anyway, so we might as well. Just monitor your progress and see if anything, see if there are any revelations. Right. And you know, was like last April, he hit six or seven home runs as a pinch hitter. I mean, he was like a a positive bench option for them mm-hmm. for a month, and then they started playing him, and pitchers figured out how to get him out real quickly. And then he also couldn't play defense, and they were like, "Well, now, now we're not sure what we have anymore." What was the original? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. He was signed what, 2014, something like that. No, no, I think like 2012. 2012, okay. Yeah. So he was signed <clears throat> out of Cuba. 2013, somewhere there, yeah. So he, he was he was signed. He was a Cuban player. He had uh, defected at some point. Uh, yeah. And uh, what was what do you do you remember the the original contract? I think. Yes, four years, 28 million. Okay. With the opt out if he's traded. Right. And what was the general? How was that generally regarded at the time that deal? I think it was considered to be a bit of an overpay. This was another one of the kind of the Dodgers throwing their money around. Uh, Yafiel Puig was considered to be an overpay, and Jin Ryu was considered to be an overpay. Like at that point, the Dodgers had uh, hit on some guys uh, where they they had outspent the market and uh, and gotten pretty good returns. So they I think were bolstered in their uh, idea of like let's just spend money and see how it works. And this was one that didn't work. Right, it didn't work necessarily. But I mean, to to be fair, Guerrero does offer it seems some power on contact. Like his isolated. Power numbers, like in you know, in the majors, for example, are quite strong. In the minors, right. they've been quite strong. So it's not as though he's he lacks all tools. No, he does have power. That is his one skill. Right, but what does not enough? I mean, compare him to Mark Trumbo, for example. Yeah, so like Mark Trumbo, I think is actually like a decent defensive first baseman who runs okay for a big guy. Um, and Alex Guerrero probably can't field any position in the big leagues. and doesn't run that well. Um, Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Apparently, I'm allergic to talking about Alex Guerrero. No, that's uh, fine. No, that's understandable. So, how does that happen, though? Where you because there were at points he played. He definitely played what second and third base. Yeah, but I think in the minor leagues you don't actually care uh, about a guy's defensive value that much. You're just trying to see what he has and develop him. Right. Uh, and so the fact that Guerrero was a disaster at second base didn't really matter in AAA. And then once they got the big leagues, well, Adrian Gonzalez is playing first base, and they don't have the DH in the National League. So if they wanted him on the field, you know, they had limited options, which is why he was a pinch hitter. Okay, so he's going to cost the team some, some ten, ten plus million dollars, essentially. This, this yeah, year. I mean they're going to have to. They've already paid him whatever half of the twenty-eight million or something like that. So mm-hmm. whatever the remainder of the contract is left, they'll just have to eat it at this point. No one's going to take Alex Guerrero. Um, I guess if looking at it from the player's side. 
because I think that um, maybe, understandably, I suppose, we're probably guilty of looking things uh, at the t- from the team side with some frequency, maybe too much frequency, Cameron. <laughs> um, uh, which is natural because one one is usually one begins following baseball because you begin following a team. You right. follow yep. a lot of Mariners games. I follow a lot of Red Sox games as a younger person, so that's how you enter the game. Right. Um, well, I guess it's it's worked out for Guerrero, right, in the sense that he got t- uh, he's gotten twenty eight million dollars. So I mean, he made his money. He made his money. Or he made the guaranteed money uh, just by virtue of that. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no nothing wrong with this from Alex Guerrero's perspective. I mean, he probably would have preferred to play well in Major League Baseball and have like a nice career. But you know, getting twenty-eight million dollars for not a lot of uh, work to see, them, not a bad gig. How did he? How did that happen? Where was he sort of on this curve of Major League teams signing Cuban players? You mentioned that there was that the Dodgers had had some luck between Ryu and Puig, um, and that might have given them the sort of uh, confidence slash hubris slash initiative to sign Guerrero. What have the? Uh, where does he sort of fit in terms of the scale of the amount of money that Cuban players have been paid? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we saw and uh, the guys from uh, Nephi Analytics wrote a post for uh, their their blog a couple months ago, kind of talking about the Cuban bubble of how when you kind of had like a good run there, kind of after Kendris Morales, uh, Puig was probably the most notable. But you had like a good run with Jose Abreu. Um, and some guys really coming over and, and doing really well right off the bat and looked like huge underpays. Uh, I think what, Abreu got $70 million or something like that, and then he had that monster first year where he probably would have gotten, you know, $200 million if he had, like, been a free agent after that first big league season where he looked like, you know, one of the biggest steals in baseball at that point. Uh, and you, you really kind of had teams saying, okay, look, well, the return on investment on Cuban players in the last three, four years has been astronomically high, and a lot of money was poured into essentially emptying Cuba in terms of players because it became easier to extract them, more guys defected. Uh, as the money went up, the, um, the business of getting players out of Cuba boomed. And so I think what we kind of had is a little bit of a, a bubble where uh, guys like Guerrero, who weren't as talented, were able to uh, get large contracts that they wouldn't have been able to get if they were, say, from the Dominican Republic or Korea or anywhere else in the world that wasn't Cuba. Okay. The Dodgers also... Uh, signed for I think five years, five twenty-five. Um, another Cuban player, shortstop Arizbel Arubarena. Yeah, good job on his name. Maybe I said it correctly. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think he's uh, he's had some demonstrable troubles, right? I'm usually suspended for the year. Uh, yeah, for the second year, I believe. Actually, <laughs> this is the second time the team has basically said you're too obnoxious to have around. How annoyed? What is he uh, giving people wet willies or something? <laughs> no, he just uh, doesn't. He's not apparently the, like the least coachable guy you can imagine. Doesn't take instruction. Is uh, disobeying all the orders given to him. Uh, is apparently frustrated with his lot in life of being in a ball, making five million dollars, or you know, in extended spring training, making five million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is just not putting in the effort to do what the Dodgers are asking him to do. Well, here's some questions. How, I guess. Does he have any incentive to try? I mean, the, the incentive is supposed to be that you can like get promoted and get back to the big leagues, but I think at this point it's pretty clear Arizbel Morena is not a major league player. He's, mm-hmm. uh, he just can't hit. And so if he none understands that he'll probably never get back to the big leagues, then it's questionable what incentive he does have. Right. And so, but now the Dodgers have not decided to designate him for some. I mean, he's probably not on the 40-man roster, is he? 
Uh, they suspended him without pay, so I believe he's not on the 40-man because he's on the suspended list. Oh, oh, sorry, it's without pay. Yeah, they, that's why they haven't gotten rid of him, because they are attempting to recoup some of their money because they suspended him as a, uh, a matter of breach of contract. Oh, okay. Now, does the if you suspend someone without pay, are you using up that year essentially of service time, or does it, or of the you know the contractual contract? Yeah, or I believe the con- uh, the contract uh, is it covers a, a certain number of years. Not okay. it's not a service time issue in the minor leagues. Right. Okay. All right. So they're not like they're not able to push ahead his contracted time a year by doing this. Yeah, no, and certainly they would not want to. They would rather just run it off. Okay. All right. But and so so what does he do then in the meantime? I mean, has he just gone back to? Or he can't go back to Cuba. That doesn't seem like something he could do. I mean, perhaps he yeah, I don't know exactly where Arizbel Arabuena is. Yeah. Uh, I I would imagine uh, he's he's somewhere in you know the Arizona uh, California area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I cannot vouch for his whereabouts. Would you trade places with someone um, in that situation? Uh, uh, well, I think my kid would miss me, so probably not. Okay, but you were getting paid five million dollars, but you knew that your essentially your career prospects were zero. Uh, I think it depends on uh, how much I really liked the career. Like if someone said, "I will give you five million dollars a year for the next couple of years," but then at the end of it, you don't have to write about baseball anymore, or you can't write about baseball anymore. You can't write about baseball. Yeah, you can't. You can't write about baseball. I would take that. I would be like, all right, that's fine. <laughs> I will go do something else with my life. But I haven't also spent like 30 years cultivating uh, a baseball writing dream of like getting to the big leagues. And so I think if I was, uh, you know, a minor league player and someone said, look, we'll give you some money to just give up on your dream. I mean, there's some, at some point you would take it, especially if you didn't think it was realistic. But if you were like a good prospect, if you had like a real chance of making it to the big leagues, even besides the money, if this is something you'd worked, you know, 10, 20 years towards, mm-hmm. to give that up, I think, would be difficult. Um, but, you know, if you just have a normal job and someone wants to pay you to not do, have to do your normal job anymore, okay. Right, to get paid $5 million not to work at, uh, like, a, you know, like a Culver's. Do yeah, or Culver's to have to, or... like, record podcasts. Like, if I just didn't ever get to record a podcast again, but I get $5 million, I would, I would do that. Yeah. That's a, good, that's a good point. Yeah. So, all right. So, Guerrero's going to be available. Is he going to be attractive to teams? Uh, I would imagine someone will sign him to a minor league deal, uh, stick him in AAA and see what he can do. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it'll be a team like the White Sox who could use a DH. Uh, and if he has, like, a good month or so, they'll call him up and say, here, have some DH at bats. Are they, are but, they using Avasel Garcia? Yeah. He's, I think, still their primary DH. All right. But is there... What's the logic behind that, I guess? I mean, besides the fact that they already... They don't employ, have anyone else. <laughs> well, I guess that's right. They already employ Garcia because Garcia is not... I mean, he's, he's roughly... He's bad. Yeah. I mean, is he a league average hitter even? I don't think. Yeah, he's a below average hitter with no defensive value. I mean, Adam LaRoche retired, so that left him a hole that they haven't filled yet. So right. at some point this summer, they will replace Adam LaRoche, uh, you know, whether it's trading for Jay Bruce or Carlos Gonzalez or uh, somebody. They will, they will acquire some kind of outfield DH guy. Uh, but you know, if they want to like, you know, try something in the meantime, they could try Alex Guerrero. The um, I, I live in New Hampshire, and so they're you know mostly surrounded. I by thought you lived in Maine. Well, I'm going moving to Maine. I'm currently in the process of moving things. I'm okay. in New Hampshire today. Okay. When okay? will you be in Maine full time? Uh, after June 15th. Okay, it's a couple weeks. I'll alert you. Yeah. 
Okay. I'm waiting on with bated breath. Yeah, I could tell that was what was going on with your breath. Uh, once once you get there, I expect blueberries and lobster. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. No, I'm not going to do that. The thing is, uh, there are a lot of uh, Red Sox fans in the immediate area. Of course, there will be in Maine too, so it really doesn't matter. The point is, I was talking with uh, one fellow here, and then another fellow was mowing his lawn nearby, and the fellow on his lawnmower yelled to the other fellow who I was talking, and he said, how about that Mookie Betts? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you could say this about... You with pride when you heard that? Not really, but you could say, you could say this about the Red Sox in general for this yeah. year, right? Okay. But, how about any of their hitters? Yeah, but so here's the thing. They're they're doing they're playing really well right now. They have uh, what they have the best record in the American League, I guess. Yeah. And it's not uh, it's not entirely a mirage. Uh, uh, I think I don't know where their base runs are at necessarily, but uh, I'm gonna guess similar. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, I, I guess? think they're not not significantly overperforming. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's the point. That's my point that I'm trying to make. They're close. And um, so I guess the thing is though, because uh, so this one guy we'll call him Tony. His name's not Tony. We'll call him Tony. He says. How do you feel about those Red Sox? And at a certain point, it's just like, yeah, I mean, they're a team. They're the team. They put together players. But how different is it than last year's version of the team that was bad for the whole year? How yeah, different I mean, I is think, it? I think it's it's not all that different, realistically. I mean, if you look at, like, the big moves that David Dombrowski made this winter to, like, reshape the team, he signed David Price, who hasn't been very good. He traded for Craig Kimbrell, who's been okay but not spectacular and has blown a few saves. Uh, they signed Chris Young, who hasn't been very good. So, right. like, uh, the dramatic additions to the team have not been why this team is winning. This team is winning because Jackie Bradley has turned into an offensive machine. Uh, Xander Bogarts has carried over last second half's uh, breakout and now looks like one of the best hitting shortstops in baseball. Um, Stephen Wright has, has kind of solidified the rotation as, like, a, a good knuckleball pitcher. Rick Porcello has improved dramatically. Um so, like, guys who were on the team last year who performed poorly are performing better. David Ortiz is having the best season of his life at age 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, not one of those things where you'd look at it and be like, oh, yeah, it's the changes that Dombrowski made that is why this, team, this team's winning. It's the, the guys who underperformed last year, Hanley Ramirez having a much better year, um, Pablo Sandoval not around. Those are the big changes. Uh, Travis Shaw coming up and, and playing third base. These are the, the kind of main reasons the team is winning, and it really didn't have anything to do with the new guys acquired over the winter. Do you think if you're, if you're Ben Charrington, you look at that and you think, come on, man. I mean, I think you're probably somewhat justified, or you feel <laughs> a little vindicated, probably. I mean, like, I think in Charrington's mind, he probably believed he was doing the right thing, and uh, just thought the results didn't follow. And so now when he sees the results following a year later, uh, even if he's not in position to, like, take credit for it, he has to feel like, okay, you know, I held on to Xander Bogarts. I didn't trade him when everyone told me I should. I didn't give up on Jackie Bradley Jr. I kept Mookie Betts. You know, I developed the young kids, and I, I thought they would turn into a good team, and now they have. And so I think he's got to feel at least a little bit uh, like, you know, he can hang his hat on this, and when he goes to interview for another job, he can be like, yeah, I built that. No, yeah. all right. Well, he should do that. Good job, Ben Sherrington. Yeah, good job, Ben Sherrington. Sorry you got fired. I don't know. Yeah. He'll probably he'll probably find a job. Yeah, he'll be Maybe. he'll be fine. Yeah, like he's gonna have his pick of GM jobs. Is I think really? in in baseball, it is pretty well understood that Ben Sherrington did a good job. Like oh. the you know the Ramirez and Sandoval contracts uh, aside, I think like no one could have seen those disasters coming. And it's not like baseball was like you shouldn't sign these guys. There were a bunch of teams who wanted to sign Pablo Sandoval and Hanley Ramirez. Uh, so I think he got undone by things that uh, a lot of other people would have done as well. And uh, his 
his overall tenure, I think, is seen as mostly a success. Free agent signings are tough. Yeah, man. If you, you spend money in free agency, there's a good chance you're going to look silly. Uh, although Ben uh, Ben Zobrist, I think, is playing quite well. Right, but a lot of people didn't like that deal because he's 35, right? I mean, like, Ben Zobrist looks great. Daniel Murphy looks great. Uh, Marco Estrada looks great. Uh, Jay Happ looks great. Like, some of the guys who were uh, identified as, you know, players that teams wanted to stay away from who had red flags were on the wrong side of 30. Uh, you know, a lot of older guys are playing really well. And then you have, you know, Justin Upton, who was like a, you know, this is the good young superstar uh, he looks like the worst player in baseball history. And now someone asked in my chat today, which Upton is better? Which is hilarious considering BJ Upton was basically almost out of baseball a few months ago and Justin Upton got $130 million a couple months ago. Oh no, is there something that happens maybe to an Upton at around, uh, what, age 28 or something? Where they just... They, they're like Cinderella's. It's like, it, it, it's, the clock strikes 28 and they just turn into a pumpkin. Yeah, but, but, uh, I think that currently, I was looking at his numbers last night, I believe Melvin Upton Maybe he's, he's posted one of the lowest strikeout rates of his career thus far. Yeah, Melvin Upton bouncing back. That's why someone asked in the chat, I think. It's like, could we actually believe that his brother is better than Justin at this point? Well, they've been, I mean, he's been better this year. For the last year plus, like, because Justin Upton wasn't very good in the second half last year either. That's hard to predict. So, but, so it did happen. It, that's, uh, uh, Melvin Upton's career fell, fell apart during his age 28 season. So maybe, yeah. maybe we just have to, Justin just has to go through a couple of, Miserable years in which he transformed Maybe in, in four years, the uh, Justin Upton will be included uh, in some trade to San Diego with an overpriced reliever and another uh, misguided attempt to win. Oh, yeah, how did that happen before? They, oh, he was already traded he, there once. He was. <laughs> no, I'm... Yeah, right, okay. I was uh, <laughs> making the allusion to the Keg Kimball trade. Right, the Kimball trade, but I was also thinking... Because Melvin Upton, of course, plays for the Padres as well. What did, that, was the, that was the joke. That yeah. was the deal, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Good joke, I guess. <laughs> the best jokes are the ones you have to explain. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. widely acknowledged. All right, I believe you've uh, fulfilled your obligation. <laughs> On Isn't that it? note, get, get Cameron off the pod. Is there anything we've uh, we've ignored here in particular? Uh, anything big? No, no. You see, uh, did you see Noah Syndergaard pitch in relief yesterday? I did. Yeah. Throw, he throws hard. He does throw hard. Yeah. Yeah. That does not seem like it'd be very easy to face him. Yeah, I wouldn't want to. And yet, not quite as good as Clayton Kershaw. Uh, correct. Yeah. Mm. Throwing hard is great, but not as great as having like three plus pitches and never walking anyone. Yeah. I don't know. I still think that when I watch, when I watch Clayton Kershaw, it's not what I watch him, it's when anyone's watching him when he's pitching. Clayton Kershaw, it does not look amazing at all times. I mean, it looks good. It looks yeah. good, but it does not look generational or whatever you, however you want to phrase it. Right, it's 94, not 99. The right. curveball is amazing. I don't think you can watch that curveball and not, not be the like, curveball oh, is definitely fun. The curveball yeah, is definitely right. fun. Yeah. It's a big, huge breaking ball. Yeah. Uh, but right, it's not like uh, you know when center guards in the game and throwing 97 mile an hour sliders. You're not like falling all over yourself. It's just like never seems to miss his location ever. Right. Yeah, but that's a harder thing. I know that Enos yeah. Harris has done a lot of work with this. Attempting to quantify or isolate command is difficult. Yeah, right. It's kind of like uh, Greg Maddox, right? Like, for Greg Ma- for 10 years, Greg Maddox was the best pitcher alive, but he was, you know, 90 to 94 with a good changeup in sync. And so it wasn't Roger Clemens or, you know, Randy Johnson, he, but he was better than those guys. Kershaw right. is kind of the same way right now, where it's not Jose Fernandez, he, but he's still better. Right. Fernandez is pretty good. Fernandez is also pretty good, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, Cameron. Thank you so much. Uh, you Yo. fulfilled your obligation. I'm, now I'm thanking you. Thank you. 
You're welcome. All right. That has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Stooley, this has been Fangraphs Audio.